Hey, good morning. I hope you're doing well. Uh, welcome those in the auditorium, those who are worshiping at one of the campuses or North Carolina or worshiping online. I uh, just kind of wanted to give you a quick uh, change of something that's happening around here, and that is um, we've added uh, prayer rooms to all our campuses. And what that means is um, our church auditorium doesn't have a traditional altar because if you come forward to kneel at the altar, you're going to be kneeling in front of a subwoofer, and it will be a moving experience, but it won't be a spiritual one. And so um, what we're trying to do is we're trying to give opportunity for people that want to pray after a service or maybe a message or maybe a a song spoke to you or something, and, um, and you feel you just want someone to pray with. We have some trained prayer counselors we're using, and it's right out these doors in the auditorium here to the right, and we have those on all our campuses, and so just it'll become part of our culture, but I just want to let you know it's beginning today. So if at the end of a moment or service or whatever, you want to have a time of prayer, people are waiting there to, to help in that way. So join me in a word of prayer, and we'll get started today. So Lord, thank you so much for your love, and thank you for these great folks, and um, man, Lord, um, we need you. We need you so desperately in our lives and in our world, and um, we're here because we're just acknowledging our need of you. And so we pray over the next few moments, this wouldn't just be something we do out of habit, it would be something out of necessity, that we would just need you at the deepest level and hunger for you, and you would, Lord, you'll quench that hunger, you'll give us that desire of our heart, and if we just hunger and thirst after your righteousness, you'll quench that. And so, Lord, um, we offer ourselves to you in this moment, and I ask, Lord, that you would meet the needs, no matter what we're carrying, we offer ourselves to you. Hide me in your cross, so that when we leave, we're so impressed and in awe with you and your message, and uh, we'll give you praise for all that in your name. Amen. So uh, I don't know, uh, I know not everybody grew up in this generation, but I grew up in a generation where the TVs were, were black and white, and uh, we got three channels, and those three channels were desperately dependent on these things called rabbit ears. How many rabbit ear people we got in here? Bless you, you are my people. And, uh, and how about this, how many of you all had the technologically advanced parents who found out somewhere that if you put aluminum foil on the rabbit ears that you could, you know, that, that that's, and so um, my first five years of my life, I thought my name was remote because dad would say remote, get up and turn the channel. And so I'd have to go and get him one or three and then I had to adjust the rabbit ears to get rid of the static so we could bring the picture in clearer. And then um, the same thing was actually true in the, in the car because do y'all remember like radio stations? I know we don't have this much anymore, but there were these radio stations and we would listen to these radio stations. And the problem was when you drove, you would lose the frequency of what that station was being broadcast at. So you're trying to hear the end of Paul Harvey's The Rest of the Story. Any of those people in the room? Yes, yes. And so, um, and so we would be just trying to tune it just to get that last bit of the rest of the story in. Now, if every reference I've made so far is like foreign to you, well, you're the generation that can Google it, okay? You can just Google it to find that out. But I just still want you to be involved in the conversation, so let me see if I can do this for you. So um, if, if um, it's like having one bar on your phone or maybe no service, and you're trying to keep the conversation going, but you really are losing, they're like, what'd you say, what'd you say, kind of can you hear me now sort of thing. So that, that's static. That's what's causing all of that. It's static. In fact, static's defined this way. It's crackling or hissing noises on a telephone, radio, or the big word there, uh, systems. That's what static is. Now let me ask you this. Doesn't this current period of history feel like there's a lot of static on the line? Doesn't it feel like there's some crackling and hissing that's drowning things out and you just can't tune it in to actually hear what is right and true? 
Because as we look at around at trends politically, socially, culturally, doesn't it seem to you, at least some of you, that maybe we've lost signal somehow along the way and nobody knows what they're doing or where in the world we're going? We're living in the most connected time of human history, and yet it feels as if we are incredibly disconnected from any clear direction and certainly any moral compass. And if you agree with that analysis, the question we have to ask is, what's causing all the static today? The pandemic, cultural change, political polarization, and the rise of social media have truly altered the world we live in, but it's been done at breakneck speed. And so the change is significant and quick, and most understand that the world has actually changed. However, the sheer rate of change feels disorienting. It it feels like static. We can't quite hear the message or see the show because of all the static on the line. In his book, A Non-Anxious Presence, Mark Sayers writes these words. In nations across the world, a range of social issues that had been simmering under the service burst forth, bringing forward a raft of issues such as racism, religious tensions, sexism, and the environment. The problem, problems of the era were intensifying at the precise moment that the era was passing. And it's that last line I want to call your attention to because I think it has something to do with why there's so much static. Countries, organizations, churches have in fact in this culture become exaggerated versions of ourselves. We aged quickly. And most of us would say, I see that to be true. But here's the problem according to Sayers. Because of the pure, pure rate of change, we are now living in what he calls a gray zone or a period of static. It illustrates it this way. We're at this point where there's a passing of an era, but the coming era has yet to be defined. And we find ourselves in this gray zone, what I'm calling a season of static. In this season of static, we contain the influence of the previous era and all that happened there. And we're anticipating the coming era, whatever that's going to be defined as. But right now, we're in the middle. And that's true on just about every cultural institution there is. Education, government, healthcare, religious. Today, we're not drowning. We're drowning not in a lack of information, but we're actually in a sea of useless, stress-producing information because we now have access to everything, even things we don't really need. And you know what the response of society has been? See if you find this to be true. Because of this era we're in, society has become more anxious, more angry, and more fearful. And so all of us are trying to react to that. Sayers suggests we've actually become an anxious global village. It used to be just me and the people went to church and I found out what was going on, you know, with that group. Now it's not just that. It's all the multi-thousand friends we have on social media and what's causing anxiety in them and their worlds. And we're frankly overwhelmed. And even Christians and churches have become sort of mired in this sticky, divisive anxiety infected by the broader culture of the day. Issues that used to be different between us now result in separation or breaking of community between us. It's no longer you and I can choose to disagree, but still love each other. Now, because of the rise of anger and fear and worry, 
Now, if there's an issue that we disagree over, I'll just take my toys and go to this place. You take your toys and go to that place. Now, like most of you, I've seen this happen in my own life as we try to navigate this season of static. And, and, and as a result, what we've done is we've turned inward as, a, as Christians. We've turned inward, withdrawn, and isolated out of fear and anxiety. And the tragedy of that is we're losing focus on a world in desperate need of a gospel. Now, like most of you, I'm, I'm going to preach in a minute. Right now, I'm just kind of setting the stage. So just give me a little grace. I know I'm hitting your heart. Like, Man, Tom, did you wake up on the wrong side? Just, well, just stay with me. See, I see trends or decisions being made that unsettle me. I do in all of our culture. I see moral compromises that trouble me as I think of my children or my grandchildren one day going through that. But please don't misunderstand me. I'm not discouraged. I'm not afraid. I'm just troubled. And here's my thought, putting all the cards on the table. What if the alive community could be proactive to these trends as opposed to reactive? Maybe just the, I'm not saying we could change the world. I'm just saying, what if we could change our communities? Maybe we could actually shape the communities that we're all a part of because I do believe we have that kind of influence. Instead of complaining about current trends, we could be constructing new ones. Maybe we could even set an example of what people who have a foundation live like in a static season. If we could establish some of these no compromise zones and gain absolute clarity about the bedrock foundations and wouldn't that impact our families and our small groups and our relationships, wouldn't that be helpful in a season of static? See, seasons of static, this isn't just a society issue. Let me tell you how this is maybe impacting your life or, or your family. Seasons of static, they're in our homes right now. They're around your dining room table. They're in an important relationship in your life. Things are not what they once were, and you're unaware of where it's going to go and what it will look like in the future. You have moved out of one stage and awaiting the new reality, but currently, it's a time of static. Maybe there's static in a marriage. The ceremony is finished, and now you're a married couple. So you've gone through the, the dating and the marriage thing. Now you're wondering what it's going to be like as a married couple. That's a season of static. Or maybe you're this, you're young, you're, you got married and all that kind of stuff, and now you're, you're starting to have children. Bless you. And this, this is a season of static because you know what it's like to have each other. You're not sure what it's like to have more people in your home. Now you're raising children. Maybe you're like my stage where like, you, you, you got married, you had children, and they left. So now it's just you and her, you and your spouse, and that's a season of static. This is the way it was, one era. The new era is coming, and it's a season of static. Or maybe you've even gone beyond that. You've kind of got married. You had children. They left. Now they're coming back. And there's this season of static. And I didn't know they came back. I thought it was like a no refund policy kind of thing. Maybe a decision was made that greatly impacted the family that you're in. Maybe your decision. Maybe somebody else's. But it left a wound. It hurt. And you're waiting for what happens next. You're not certain, but whatever it is, it'll be different than the era before. That's a season of static. Same thing about our future. You're in a season of waiting or lack clarity on what you should be doing. Maybe you're dissatisfied with your now, but you're truly unclear about your next. That's a season of static. 
Some people have static in their purpose, purpose of life, why you're still breathing. Maybe you've been successful in life and people seem to love you. You have friends and you're comfortable, but you're not satisfied. And you have this awakening in you that maybe you have spent a good bit of your life trying to achieve something that wasn't ultimately worth it. <laughs> it's a season of static. That was your era. You're headed to a new era, but right now it's unclear. A lot of people experience a season of static when they're grieving. They've lost loved ones. You feel disoriented and confused. An era has passed, but the new era is not yet clear. It's a season of static. The most significant season of static is the time when you realize you've been running from God or ignoring God. You've done whatever you wanted to do and you have some of the scars to prove it. That shame and guilt from some of those decisions eats away at you. And that's the era you've come from. And you wonder if maybe Jesus can help. That moment of questioning as you're waiting to see whether Jesus can help or what the with God life looks like. That's a season of static. Now, if you agree with me that there seems to be, as we culturally define this moment, there seems to be some kind of season of static going on for one reason or another, then you will be relieved to know Scripture actually speaks about a season of static almost from cover to cover. In fact, you could use it as a hermeneutic to understand all of Scripture. What does it look like to live in a season of static? Start with Genesis and end with Revelation and you'll see static throughout. But the part that I want to hone in on for this series and why we're doing this series is I want to look at the lens, put the lens of a young church before us and see what they did as they handled their season of static. We meet the church in the book of Acts. Paul and Silas then traveled through the towns of Amphipolis, those words, and came to Thessalonica where they were, where there was a Jewish synagogue. Now, uh, Thessalonica sat on this super highway called the Ignatian Way, and it ran from east to west across northern Greece. And, and Thessalonica was a big city, like 200,000 people. It was like on this, on this super highway. And, and Paul decides to start a church there because Paul was the OG Project 20. <laughs> I did that for the younger crowd because the old people are like, I'm going to have to Google what OG is. So that's okay. So here's Acts 17, verse 2. As Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue service and said it out loud for how long was he there? It's going to come very important. It's going to become very important. So he's there about, let's say, three Sabbaths. Some say three months. Some say three weeks. I don't really know, but it is a short time. He used the scripture to reason with the people. He explained the prophecies and proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. He said, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. Now, that doesn't even impact us because we're like, duh. But this is probably the church in Thessalonica and the letter that he's going to write is one of the, probably the earliest writing of Paul. These people had never heard Jesus as Messiah. They had no concept of this. It was brand spanking new. So he says, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah as he plants this church. Some of the Jews who listened were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas and many, along with many God-fearing Greek men and quite a few prominent, prominent women. Immediately after this, three weeks later, Paul and his, and his friends are run out of town rather abruptly by a hired mob. The old King James Version, listen how they describe the mob. 
lewd fellows of the baser sorts. I'm going to use that regularly now. Uh, that's like the King James for creep. You know, that's what that is. The lewd fellows at the bases. So when Paul was run, hey, when you do what you, I do, I got to find entertainment along the way. Just let me go. So when Paul was run out of town, he left these new believers in a lurch, a time of uncertainty, high anxiety, and fear. This young church that Paul had just planted had their old era, not sure what the new era would look like, and found themselves in this season of static. Recent converts for, from paganism didn't have beautiful websites to go to and download a latest message, didn't have the Scripture New Testament to turn to. This, these group, this group was in this season of static. They had little support or knowledge, so Paul decides... I'm going to write these folks a letter, this young church a letter, the folks that are living in this time, in this season of static. And by God's wonderful providence, we have that letter in our scripture. The Jewish power structure was being threatened by Roman oppression. Jewish power structure, Roman power structure, in the midst of it all, this new movement called the Way, which is several I think maybe even 100,000 strong at this point. It, could, it might not be, but at least 1,000 people strong. People following Jesus was on the rise, gaining in popularity and influence. What was an era, what will be the era, season of static. And Paul's purpose in writing the letter is to encourage this church to stay the course. Doesn't that seem like it might be a little relevant? To say to the church, don't get all wonky. I don't know that's exactly how he said it, but don't get all crazy about this. Just stay the course. Cling to what you know is true. And he lays it out in brilliant fashion. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. All of Paul's letters start with what's called a salutation, which is, dear Jim, dear Sally, except for Paul said a whole lot more in his greetings than we do in our letters. This is what he said. Paul, Savanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Pay attention. That's just water off a duck's back for me and for you, but it meant something to the hearers. Let me tell you why. This church is caught in fear. Recent converts from paganism. No idea the Jewish people are going to live when, the Roman people are going to live when, and then we just heard our founder has died, resurrected from the dead. And so Paul begins his letter by referring to God as father. And that's important because the word father is going to bring comfort, security. The word father as relates to God is loving kindness. God, your father, he reminds them, is a good, good father. He is your father and he cares for you and you are his children. And the word father alone would bring security, love, and strength to a people in a time of static. But notice what also Paul adds. He adds something that you and I just take for granted, but this was the first letter they'd ever received with this kind of greeting. Greetings to you from the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Lord is the same word. It means authority, supreme ruler. It's sometimes used to describe God in the scripture. And then Jesus is the common name, like Jesus or, or Joshua. But then he adds Christ. That was the game changer. That means the anointed one. That means Messiah. And what Paul has just done in his letter is connected God the Father, who's a good, good father, who you worshiped, your ancestors worshiped for generations, to the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Powerful. He connects the Father to Jesus the Christ, and that is getting ready to be significant to a group living in a static time. Let me show it to you. Remembering before our God and Father your work and faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We know, brothers and sisters, beloved by God, that he has chosen you. Verse 5. Because our message of the gospel came to you not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And that's where we're going to camp out today. Because there, my friends, in those words, is the first unshakable, peace-bringing reality that we cling to in a static season like we're facing right now. And it's simply this. The gospel has power. The gospel has power. Many in the modern church have never experienced the true power of the gospel, and therefore they live melbatose kind of lives and fear-filled existences, lives that have lost their saltiness, having no awareness of the gospel power within them. So what in the world is the gospel? If we're going to get serious about it in a static season, what exactly are we talking about when we speak of the gospel, I would say this. The gospel is the good news of what God has done through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Especially what he accomplished through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That's the gospel. Read it again. Make sure you're on the same page. The gospel is the good news of what God has done through the person and work of Jesus Christ especially what he accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection. You, you could consider the sinless life of Jesus Christ. You could consider the teaching ministry of Jesus Christ. You could consider his healings and, and raising people from the dead. And it all falls short if it's not rooted in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. I mean, it's impressive, but it's not divine. And Paul wants the reader to understand the young church living in this static season, this was God who was beaten and suffered. This was God who died on the cross. This was God who sacrificed himself on your behalf. This was God who was buried. This was God who overcame sin and death. Paul says, you have to understand the power of that. This was God. And did you notice what Paul writes when he says, because our message of the gospel, and other translations says because my gospel, it's not Paul's in the sense he made it. It is this truth, though, that Paul has actually taken, ready, as his own. 
The gospel's not going to have power in your life if you've never taken it as your own, if you've never accepted that power in your life. You see, the power of the gospel comes in power when it is your gospel, when you've received it, when you decide or recall the gospel power in a life or a situation or a static season. Paul writes to the church at Philippi, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of me. This is my gospel. It's like if a church like drew something on a napkin and said like, you could everyone have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ idea. That's what this is. This is my gospel. We all have a personal relationship with Jesus, but this is mine. And when you decide to recall the gospel and the power in a life or situation, it takes a static season and gives you a lifeline. It's not a matter of mere words when we're talking about the gospel comes in power. It's not a matter of just good preaching when we're talking about the gospel comes in power. The word for power is the same root word we use for dynamite. In other words, when Paul wrote about the gospel, he believed it had explosive, transformative power. There was no safety and comfort of the modern church. It was like you were holding dynamite and a lit fuse in your hand when you talked about the gospel because you knew at any time it had the kind of power to blow up, to change for God's good and God's glory. Paul is saying the true gospel comes in explosive, transformative power, church. It means chains are broken under the, under the power of a true gospel and relationships are mended under the power of a true gospel and addictions are defeated under the power. They're not pacified under the power of a true gospel and forgiveness is abundant under the gospel and lives are changed and families are restored and evil is defeated and grace and mercy flavor the communities of the gospel. That's the kind of gospel Paul was speaking about. And the question we have to ask ourselves is this. Do we know the gospel and its transforming power in our lives? Or have we bought into something less authentic? I don't know, to be honest. I don't know. In my own life, I can see places where the gospel has transformed. But I must confess, I can probably also see places where it hasn't. Am I alone or are you with me? I don't blame you. I wouldn't answer that one either. (laughs) Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians from Corinth. And uh, he writes three to four years later to the Corinthian church, and he describes what gospel he's talking about when he writes 1 Thessalonians, the gospel he preached about when he first came. Paul's describing the very thing he's writing to the young church. He says this, by this gospel, you're saved, which we get. That Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared, check this out, to Peter and then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to 500 other dudes at the same time. Some of those dudes are still living. Some are no longer living, Paul writes. That's massively important. Paul is making sure that we know this 
powerful gospel centered on the person of Jesus Christ is actually rooted in historical events. If you believe in Nero or Alexander the Great or Caesar, then you can believe in Jesus because the same historical evidence that he existed is there. This isn't an idea. This isn't a theory. This isn't who has the best belief system. These events happened at a real place on a real plot of ground to a real person. Not an opinion, not a competition. It's not finding one that fits your lifestyle. The gospel is a fact to, believe, to be believed. It is to be proclaimed and then received. It's not to be edited. It's not to be adapted to what's going on in culture. And you can't improve on it. They were certain the gospel was real. And the good news of what God had done through the person of work of Jesus Christ, especially what he accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection, was the product that would change the world. And it happened in history. And if one considers the power, the opportunity to accept the power of the gospel, and if one considers the person of the Holy Spirit who accompanies the gospel in the life of the believer, and if one considers the conviction of the gospel for the one and only life, then the obvious question that you must wrestle with and I must wrestle with for people living in a static season is this. How would my life be different if I fully trusted the power of the gospel? How would your life be different that, that thing that's occupying your thoughts these days. How would it be different if you believed the gospel still had power? The fear that you carry around with you all the time. How would it be different if you truly believed unequivocally the gospel had power to change it. Those of you who have accepted Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, and yet you still find yourself carrying shame and regret, how would your life be different if you truly believed in the full transforming power of the gospel? And the conviction that the gospel is so powerful, it can't just change and forgive a little. It does the whole shooting match. How would your life be different? As a citizen of a static season, I just wrote two ideas down when I asked myself that question. I long for the power of the gospel to affect my daily life my every waking moment life. Do you understand what I'm saying? I, I tend to think, or we maybe tend to think of only forgiveness of sin when it comes to Jesus. And that part is certainly true. But there is so much more than the forgiveness of sin and to limit the role of Jesus in our lives as only our savior for sin is to actually ignore the many dimensions of Jesus' work on the cross. 
John Flavel, a 17th century English Puritan, noted this. The greatest difficulty in conversion is to win the heart to God. And the greatest difficulty after conversion is to keep the heart with God. Someone say amen. Isn't that amazing? Heart work is hard work. Friends, I, I don't know how to say it. The, the gospel changes your static moment right now. It has that kind of power. And we don't understand it. The gospel, as you're sitting there in all the makeup of who you are, all the things you're carrying, the gospel power has a moment to change that right now. And for some, it may be a salvation moment. Don't misunderstand. But for others, it may be a sanctifying moment, a healing moment, a wisdom moment, a convicting moment, a forgiving moment, all of them transforming moments. Scripture tells us about the gospel. The gospel takes us from shame to honor. The gospel takes us from fear to power, from defiled to clean, from lost to belonging. The gospel takes us from chaos to order, from despair to hope and slavery to freedom and death to life, from guilt to innocence. Jesus brings forgiveness, yes, but so much more. And it's available to you and to me in our everyday life. In the everyday situation you're dragging around with you, Right now, I want the power of the gospel to affect my daily walk. Here's the second thing as a person living in static season. I long to live with a focus on the power of the gospel instead of the power of me. What's happened in our culture because of the static season, the leaving of one era, headed into a new era, and now living in the gray zone, as we've become paralyzed by introspection, we are professional navel gazers now. We're trying to figure out what's wrong with me. What's going on? Why am I filled with anxiety today? Why am I so filled with fear? What do I need to do to get rid of my anger? And you know what? It's not just us. The whole world's doing it. Why are people being stupid in the daycare centers? Why are people walking into stores and doing dumb things? Why are these things going on in my home? And we sit at night and we gather the closest 2,000 friends on social media to see what they think about things. And it's causing us to almost cave in upon ourselves. Do you remember what St. Augustine said? He said, our natural bent is to turn in upon ourselves. Do you remember that? But the gospel allows us to turn outward. What agenda could be behind getting the church, the bride of Christ, to return inward on himself? We can't afford to do it. We can't do it. The hope of the gospel moves we move beyond this try harder message and it frees me, frees you from needing to control that which God already has through his power and it releases me and releases you from trying to fix ourselves or to fix our friends or to fix our families or to fix those we love. Why? Because we believe in a power beyond who I am. 
don't try to fix your children. Release the gospel upon those guys. Don't try to fix your spouse. Release the gospel on the marriage. Don't try to fix the addiction. Release the gospel on it. Why? It's the only thing I've read in Scripture that has that kind of power. We just forgot. Oh, Tom, this is who I am. It's always going to be I'm not according to Scripture. Get that junk out of here. Not according to Scripture. Scripture never says that. You can meet Jesus, but you're probably still going to drag around a bunch of junk with you. No, not according to Scripture. It actually says, I'm a brand spanking new car smelling creation. (laughs) That's what it says. Question is whether or not I believe it. Whether or not I've experienced it. Whether I believe in the power of the gospel as opposed to the power of me. The dominant message of the gospel is actually what Jesus has done for you. So let me ask you one more time. How would your life be different if you fully trusted the power of the gospel? What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of what God has done through the person and work of Jesus Christ, especially what he accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection. I've been experimenting with this the last couple of weeks. I haven't graduated yet, (laughs) but I am trying. Situations I can't control. I've been praying the gospel over them. It's almost like I'm a secret spy or something. <laughs> I know I got problems. I'm just, I'm just like, man, Lord, that thing's too big for me. I can't fix that thing. But you can. I pray the gospel on that. Friends that come into the marriage, I, I'm praying the gospel on that. Children, I'm praying the gospel on my kids. Things I carry that message on repeat in your brain. You all familiar? Not the good message, the bad message. I pray the gospel over that sucker. Wake up in the middle of the night, torn up, stressed about something. You know what I do now? I used to sit there and try to plan and figure out how to fix it, which is a very frustrating experience because if I could fix that, I would have done so before I went to bed so I could get a good night's sleep. I've been praying the gospel over it. Lord, you said it has power. Release your power in that situation. You have power. Out of all the power in the world, that's the power we want to see released. Heavenly Father, would you release your power, the gospel, on these people? Would you release it in their lives? Would you bring healing and hope, restoration, grace, mercy? Would you convict of our sin? Would you release your power, the gospel, on the alive communities? Would you change our homes? Would you allow us to be beacons of light to a world in desperate need of direction and clarity? Lord, you've done this before. You brought revival to this land and other lands, and you're bringing revival now in lands around the world. What if that's what you're up to in this season of static? What if that's what you're asking us for today? Lives that would sell out to the gospel. And maybe in coming years, people would look back and say, what happened? How did the world gain clarity? Well, these people started praying. These people started believing in the power of a gospel. What's the gospel? Oh, it's this guy, Jesus, and 
all that he did and what he said he was going to do, and he did through his death, resurrection. That guy. And these people actually believed it and then applied it to their lives, and it started spreading from their homes to other homes. And next thing you knew, the whole community got crazy. The power of the gospel was released. Healings happened. Lives changed. Addictions were broken. Marriages restored because they, they allowed the gospel to be released in their lives. Lord, if that's possible, that we could be part of that. The Alive community is in. If you're listening to the sound of my voice and you have never experienced the power of the gospel, could I invite you to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ right now? Could I invite you to the most powerful, life-giving relationship right now? And what it means is you believe, you believe in the power of this gospel and that you invite it into your life. And then God will begin teaching you and shaping you into how you can be like him. Maybe it'd be good for you to stop at the prayer room and talk to someone, say, hey, can you give me a little more insight on this? For some of you who've been living in the doldrums of Christianity, because you have forgotten the power of the gospel, could I invite you to join me this week in releasing that power? Oh God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, move this place in your name. Amen.